Welcome to Rumble Strip, Vermont. I'm Erica Heilman. In the walkway up to where we had our room, there were cracks in the wall, and those cracks were people. And I drew those things. That's how it started for me. <laughs> That's Peter Schumann. That is Peter playing fiddle with his eight-year-old grandson, Ira, on the drums. Today's show is a conversation with Peter in which I ask him over and over and over again to answer questions that don't really have answers about what makes a great performance and what is a great performance. Peter Schumann is a driven, prolific artist who makes huge outdoor theater performances with giant paintings and puppets and sculptures. There's music, there are people making animal sounds, and everything seems to be made of paper mache twigs, twine, and cardboard. It's called Bread and Puppet Theater, and it lives in an old farmhouse in Glover, Vermont, when it's not performing around the country and the world. There's a museum behind the farmhouse, an enormous old barn where all the veteran puppets and paintings from past shows now live, thousands of them, some as small as your thumb, tacked or taped onto the wall, and some as big as houses hanging from the rafters. And what Peter Schumann makes isn't always good, but somehow it's always great. There's a kind of wild current that runs through everything he does, and it all seems to be alive even after he's been done with it for years. Here's a conversation with Peter Schumann. Welcome. Are you warm enough here? Is this warm enough for you now? I've got my... You know, said I said to you, I asked you on Friday about how last year when I came for that one day during the beginning of the season. Oh, so you came for a rehearsal? Yeah, it wasn't entirely clear coming from the outside what was happening, um, but there was a lot happening. Was it in the field out there? Or was it in the field? Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of simultaneous stuff happening. But what, how would you describe what your job is or your role? What's your I mean, relationship? What do, I, what do I get paid for to be well, the inspector general? Right, right, that's the most important thing. <laughs> and then what's your, um, what is your relationship to the people in the show? I mean, what are you trying well, to see, do with that, them? That, that's, that's, the, that's a total different thing from one show to another. In the one that you saw, that was obviously a circus. And in the circus... Uh, the important thing is that every participant has voice and every crazy idea or political proposal or philosophical proposal or dance proposal gets a hearing and gets a tryout. And they get tossed together and they can be very good. They often get destroyed by then putting them into rehearsal fires and, and they get melted down and they get mixed in different ways. So they lose often their, the best part of them, which was the first little spark of it. But out of that, you make a show, and that show is called Circus. So it's all in the round and people can 
pretty much do relatively crazy things, not totally. But and my role in this is undefined. It's like being choreographer or or advisor, general, and so on. I throw a lot of things out. I add things. I take little moments that seem good and elongate them, or the opposite. You know when you're pointing in somebody, you know everybody has a big blind spot in their, in their rearview mirror where they can't see. Mm-hmm. And when you were in the, after all of the rehearsal happened, we moved into the barn and people kind of did roughs of their first thing. Mm-hmm. And what it seemed like was what you were pointing it felt like what you were doing in part was pointing at the rear in the in the blind spot like look over there mm. they're they're very subtle cues that you're giving to something that's beautiful that maybe that they made mm-hmm. that they didn't even see um mm-hmm. but if you point too f- hard mm-hmm. you kill it yeah, it's a very yeah. subtle thing no yeah, it is yeah yeah and these goddamn circuses they are uh, easily as bad as they are good you know, they are upsettingly something and then uh, uh, struggle to be something else. And yeah, if you're lucky, one comes together and is good. And they may be good one week and they're no good at all next week. So they are very much up and open. And the unfortunate contribution of perfectionists is what hinders them most. We have a lot of uh, art-educated people. Art education means perfectionism. And those perfectionists go after things and then it becomes like classical ballet. And the one, and the two, and the three. And that kind of thing doesn't work. So it works for a tiny little stretch of some stilt dance and then it breaks down into boredom. yeah, often, often horrible, so, yeah. Well, it's people's heads are full of stuff they are brought up with or what they see. So they see the goddamn Broadway shows and then they have that in their bloodstream and then they have, they have to deliver that somehow. And here's a vehicle for them to do so. Then they have to be stopped. Yeah, they are like that. <laughs> You said when when there are those tiny moments when it when something's mm-hmm. happening, when good performance happens, it's it's like time collapses. For mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what can you describe what that is? No, Mm-mm. it's just something that happens. It's not arrangeable, doable. Listen to a really good pianist play Mozart. One concert is sublime and the next one isn't. It's not predictable, it's not doable, it's not something that comes from education. The education becomes a background to all this, but then the actual performance is something in time that is a total improvisation. And unless the character of the musician can bear that to be so on the loose, to be so exposed to the chaos of either it's total or it's nothing, then he isn't any good. So it has to be a wild, wide open character 
who can do that? Like Glenn Gould, he didn't even want to perform anymore. He didn't want to have a public because he couldn't stand that, this total exposure to this nudity, sort of. Get stripped naked in front of an audience, what for? But you know, when, when then you imagine 50 people or lots of people together making something mm. when they're the the unlikeliness mm. of having a moment like that with that many people mm, when you do so many with so many people very different elements come into play besides that performance momentum and the greatness of the possibility of greatness at the moment there are so many formalities there are so many things where weather and air, temperature, other people, community with others, the, the deafness of the band leader, all these things contribute. And we have a deaf band leader, and that's amazing, and it works. And I think it works because he is so deaf. He can't capture any of the cues, so he does his own show and they do their own show. It's almost like what Cage and Cunningham tried to do, you know. I do my show and you do your show and we have nothing to do with each other. We only happen to be here in space. <laughs> what does it have to do with, I mean, the whole point of going to a show is the slim chance mm. that something will happen mm-hmm. and we'll all be here together mm. for a moment in the same moment. Mm. And that is very rare. Yeah, but it's even even more complicated because the listener has to have that sublime possibility in herself or in himself also. And if that doesn't coincide with that sublime possibility out there, nothing is happening. What do they, the listener or the, the audience and the performers, what do they have to do with each other? How do they affect each other's experience of the sublime? Does the audience affect the performers' potential? That is another one of those biggie things that are almost not possible to explain because an audience is the result of a New York Times, it's the result of art history, of almost two centuries of diligent writing of what's good and what's bad, It's it's cultural politics of the day. An audience is very seldom somebody who has enough of all of that in order to also be free to be none of that. When you read um, poetry interpretations by people like Heidegger or Adorno or people with a vast knowledge of cultural affairs and with perspectives that go into the social system of the time and all that, it's very, very different from, let's say, the New York Times reporting on poetry, which is done by poetry specialists who are sort of semi-linguists or something like this, but have very evidently no idea of what's going on in the world. It's just too difficult to define it. There are too many elements coming together. So if you want to try to figure out how can we define that, this greatness? And then maybe we can imitate it. No, it's not possible. Aren't you always looking for that, though? In a No, you look for what the heck. That's what you're looking for. What the heck? Whatever's happening, is happening. 
You just take your courage in your hand and you pour yourself down the road there and that's it. And you do it. Yeah, and there is education going into that moment. There's no, it's not that the fiddlers shouldn't learn fiddling and the pianists shouldn't learn piano. Sure they should. But that, that doesn't guarantee them that it's great. And the fact that the cultural institutions support it or don't support it also doesn't make it great. So the, the real wonderful thing you're looking for there is, is an accident, an incident. What does it have to do with, for, for you personally, what does it have to do with faith? There's a pointing to something bigger always in everything that you make. So what does faith have to do with making things? Or? Well, we call it possibilitarianism. It's this possibilitarian uh, chance of the world that it could be otherwise. The Margaret Thatcher was called Tina. That was her nickname because she said to the Russian Empire of the time, to the Bolshevik state, there is no alternative. Capitalism is the only alternative. And then people nicknamed her. Ah, your name is Tina, right? There's no alternative. But she so totally got them wrong as she was in her policies. It's Tata is the real thing. There are a thousand alternatives. And especially bigger and better ones than this form of capitalism. So they, all the Tinaists have to be countered by the Tataists, the Tata people, the people who see that. As an artist, as a teacher, as a musician, you deal with that. You have to deal with that. So you deal with it as good as you can. That's what, so in all these things that I do or that the puppeteer does, there's always this pointing to bigger possibilities, I think. We call it possibilitarianism. So when you say your point, when it points to something bigger, it has to do with being human and what's possible, but it doesn't have to do with God. No, I mean, the, the, the language of God, the language of assignment, of naming the forces that attract or, or direct or magnify all that, that's all so categorized. That's why I, I don't know if I'm struggling to find a, the word, because that's not what I mean. Right, so there isn't the singular terms for that. So what you mean is the pointing to something that is, that is, that is, and then you stop. Right. Yeah, there isn't much more. Can't get language that doesn't exist. That's what the kid's language is. So it's the language that is what it is. That's the language that when the words in language were invented, that's what it was. And, they, and words lost that. So words aren't words anymore. And sentences aren't sentences anymore. They, they have double, triple, and quadruple meanings, and they, they are stripped of their beauty and innocence, and then 
by listening to the kids, you can get an insight and in what they really are. Do you have a story from your kids, something? An example of mm -hmm. that? No, I don't. I think there were too many. Yeah. But it was amazing. I remember us sitting uh, and just seeing what they did and what they said. <laughs> just totally awestruck of what that is. Yeah, it applies to gesture and dance as well. You know, when you watch a kid. Yeah, amazing. When you, when you, um, when you were younger, I mean, maybe forever, you, you have known that you that it will be what it is, the show, that whatever the show is that mm -hmm. is happening. But did your investment, or maybe your ego's investment in the show, change over time? work with these many people, I don't think of myself or of what I want. I know what I want or what I can see, what we together can do, and I make proposals and all that. But the thingy happens all by itself somehow. And the audiences are always aware, and we are aware of the audiences being aware that the cloud spectacle is bigger than what we do. Wait, I, the fan went on. Well, it's a fact that when you, which we do a lot, play outdoors and the meadow or the horizon or the patch of forest play a major part. The way the hill is laid out, the way the movement makes itself through the field, that sounds that you only sounds vocal or instrumental are greatly influenced by where you are in the field the major spectacle is always what happens from above either it downpours on you or the sun blazes down on you or the wind blows your hat off or whatever it is so those elements are together with the fact that there is a crowd there that considers itself watchdogs or audience. But they are part of the spectacle. Their movement, their coughing, their silence, their wigglings, they are taking care of the babies or of the beer bottles. They drink, they get drunk, they have a little conversation, they look at something, they don't look at something. And the total composition is that that is a detail in that picture. It's all part of it. So, yeah, but no, that's how it goes. Being 82, what are, you know, I picked up a book 
last week and found I wasn't interested anymore. It didn't hold mm-hmm. anything for me anymore. And that surprised me. Yeah. So what do you need at 82? What do you need now? That, and what okay, do you let so go I know of? I don't need to read novels anymore. I don't need to read lengthy narratives anymore that are concerning somebody this way, that way, and so forth. No, that's over for me. I don't have to go to the movies to feel tickled or entertained or anything. I, I don't need that. But uh, while the same is true of the kids, you know, all these kids are full of backgrounds of the mass culture inflicting something upon them. For example, they come with an ear full of pop music. Not only do they have it in their own bedrooms and kitchens, but then they go shopping and there's another machine bombarding them. They have it all over them and they don't know how to get out of it. And for me, I simply make rules here. No, no such thing. No noise machines of any kind. So just, yeah, electric drill, yes, when you have to make all, that's it. That's a fine piece of music right there. (laughs) There are chapters when you find yourself in in a new place and you don't know what to expect anymore. And I wonder if what you expect now. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. You know, that's, that whole puppet enterprise was something like a Wagnerian opera. It was like trying to pull all the strings that are possible to be pulled to make a real, all-encompassing spectacle where painting and sculpture and music all play their own role within it. And uh, the big circuses and pageant were very much an attempt to find a a way of using all these guns for one particular attack. And yeah, and that I don't see it that way anymore. It's just that thing is so undoable, the big thing, that you rather abandon it and do smaller things that are more doable. So the the big thing, I don't know if it's still in me. I don't know. I don't think so. The the impulse to make things is as strong as it ever was? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean if it's not if 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 it's not a puppet show then it's a piece of music or yeah, something or other. Yeah. No, they're just sitting on the porch isn't... I love that, actually. But it never ends there. It's Even when I sit on the porch, I'll start taking notes and making things on a piece of paper. Even with cigar. <laughs> or beer. Or beer and cigar, even better. <laughs> yeah. Do you still dance? Yeah, sure. Labyrinth dances, yeah. Do you still, do you feel still very much inside your body? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so much so that I couldn't write if I wouldn't be in very good physical shape because it's an act that's done with my hand and my upper body and what have you. So for me, physical togetherness is crucial. Painting is a, is, is a dance, is a, is a 
violent dance often, just jumping at that thing and disposing of something. It's, so it's, uh, yeah, it all goes very, very fast, very, very fast. I do everything very fast. That's why we have so many slow motion pieces in all our pieces. <laughs> to stop it all down. <laughs> Must be. But that's just what the landscape does to you. Even though we, in New York, we started this year, there was very, very slow pieces. I remember the first pieces were extremely slow pieces, with hardly anything happening. Because I had the conviction that theater isn't about plots or anything, but it's about what you see and what you hear, and that's all it is. So you compose what you see and what you hear, and then by composing that, you need very little to make something that has tension in it, as a picture has tension in it, you know. And so are, is, does that mean that, that narrative is cloying or narrative is, is pulling at, you said earlier that you don't need to go to something that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Right, yeah. Um, now the narrative element is, I mean, yes, I love the fairy tales and all that, but it's uh, this what is called engaging or compelling people's drama and story writing and imitation living room, bedroom and kitchen are trying to be compelling. And that turns me off because I don't need it. When you say the word compelling, you're, you mean you're trying to, you're trying to lure Com- me. Uh, when, when, yeah, what? Okay, right. right. So you don't right. want to be lured. Right. I right. see. To watch it, to see it, to listen to it, to understand it, instead of to being. <laughs> but you're still invited to have a visceral experience. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, it can can do all kind of those things to you, commit you shake or not. Yeah. You know the um, first time I. The first time I came to the barn, the experience of one small postage stamp sized mm-hmm. painting to rooms full of puppets mm-hmm. the size of drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a profound experience to go through. Mm-hmm. I- I'm aware of how fragile it seems or how mm-hmm. e- ephemeral it is. And that, mm-hmm. I was so moved by that, but also sad it is it's a melancholic place i agree it's totally melancholic it's a very sad place and when i go in and i look around all that those jolly figurations whatever they are and in between them there are all these little dust beetle piles all over the place the whole floor is full of them meaning as we are talking as we go through there and anything. The Beatles are working on its destruction and they will succeed. Why is it the be- the barn melancholic? Because of ephemeral things are melancholic. A beautiful piece of music is basically melancholic. That's what it is. Even a poem, a beautiful poem, is melancholic. And the poet is dead. Ah, the poet didn't succeed to live forever. Not even Tolstoy or Goethe. 
People thought those guys would live forever. No, they didn't. They died. So, yeah. People really thought, in both cases, how can this person just go away? It's not possible. So it's so much there in this presence. <coughs> but they did go away. So that was it. Yep, that's life. So life is slightly melancholic from the onset. Not just for senior citizens, <laughs> for teenagers as well. Yeah. Oh, I remember when Henry was born that first day. Oh. Yeah, to see these little fruits lying there in their fruit basket. Mm. Do you think about age, your own? My own age? Uh, does it, my, does it my, occupy your mind? Do you think about Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, death and all, the, all our... People always told me all our things are about death. <laughs> and to a certain degree, yeah, they are. Yeah, sure, naturally, yeah. Going away seems a big themes in all the Britain puppet shows. But what about yourself personally? I mean, you're... you're sure, yeah, that's why I'm working on Faust Three right now. Because Goethe died when he did, when he finished Faust two, So I feel obliged to live a little longer and do Faust three. He was 82. That's my 82nd year now. So, And the funny thing is he died exactly as Faust. Because in Faust, the deal with the devil was... Wenn ich zum Augenblicke sage, verweile doch, du bist so schön. When I say to the moment, please stay, you are so beautiful, then I can die. So Faust built a dam. He, he dammed in a swampy area and made it uh, useful for agriculture and all that. And finally he said, I did it. It's good. This is a nice piece of land. And Mephisto naturally was right next to him when he said it and tipped him right over. But that's how it is. And then when Goethe finished Faust two, after he had his 82nd birthday, he said very similar words. He said, yes, now I think, I, I think I'm satisfied. And he died. Are you, are you... Unsatisfied. Are you, Me, unsatisfied. <laughs> unsatisfied or satisfied? Totally unsatisfied. <laughs> no chance. Mephisto, did you hear that? <laughs> He's waiting, you know. But <laughs> can't have him. <laughs> Permanently unfinished. <laughs> but... <laughs> Peter Schumann, founder of Bread and Puppet Theater. You can find much more information about the theater, including their show schedule, at breadandpuppet.org. You can also find pictures of Peter and Ira and some of the puppets on my website, rumblestripvermont.com. Music for the show was by Peter Schumann and his grandson, Ira Karp. 
And right now you're listening to Glenn Gould from the 1955 Goldberg Variations. I would love to hear any comments or stories you might have about the show, or Bread and Puppet, or Peter. You'll find a comment box at the bottom of the show page at rumblestripvermont.com. And as always, your donations make this show possible. You'll find the donate button at the top right of the website. It's green. I want to thank Claire Dolan, Jennifer Miller, Larry Massett, Scott Carrier, and Mark Estrin for their help on this show. I'm also excited to report that I have recently joined a collective of great podcast producers called The Herd. They're from all over the country and even Canada. And the big thing for me is that it's a lot less lonely in my closet these days. I'm very happy to have joined them. If you want to learn more about the group, you can visit theherdradio.com. That's theherd, H-E-A-R-D, radio.com. One of the founding members of The Herd is Jacob Lewis from Nashville. He produces a great show called Neighbors from Nashville Public Radio. His recent show called The Fence Jumper is about some of the complexities of trying to connect with other people. Here's a clip. Where have you seen that terribly backfire or go wrong or be like a bad experience? I saw this sweet little puppy bopping down the interstate and I decided to pull my car over and I started to call it and instead of coming to me, it goes straight into traffic and dies in front of my face. You can find Neighbors on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or at NeighborsPodcast.com. This is Rumble Strip Vermont. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening.